Good. So what I thought we'd do today is uh, we'd start off and we'd look at a few prayer problems before we actually look at any prayers. Uh, and I thought, who better to get some good counsel on prayer than Homer Simpson? So uh, let's, uh, let's we'll roll the clip. and change the channel. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'll do what Flanders does. Oh, merciful God, who has blessed mankind with two kinds of clam chowder. Help me find the remote. <gasps> there it is! I've never actually been to a baseball game. The fresh air gives me hives. Die, monster! You're watching Monkey Olympics on fire. It worked! I got my wish. From now on, I'll pray till my hands are chapped and bleeding. Ooh, low marks. I've never seen noodles this mad. She's throwing her diaper at the judges. Oh, Lord, please guide that diaper into someone's schnoz. Vengeful God, loving God. Vengeful God, loving God. Vengeful God, loving God. Vengeful God, loving God. <laughs> I could do this all day, and I just might. Vengeful God, loving God. Vengeful God, loving God. Setting up a prayer station, eh, Homer? You know, I used to think God only helped professional athletes and Grammy winners. But now I realize he helps most like me, too, Carl. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Dear Lord, as I think of you, dressed in white with your splendid beard, I am reminded of Colonel Sanders, who is now seated at your right hand, juggling popcorn chicken into thy mouth. Lord, could you come up with a delicious new taste treat like he did? I command you. I want you! Move over, eggs. Bacon just got a new best friend. Fudge! Oh, heavenly God, my son is plagued with homework. With your vast knowledge of the shorebirds of Maryland, I know you can help him. Homer, God isn't some kind of holy concierge. You can't keep bugging him for every little thing. Cannon Mill, now to unstuff the stink. Lord, please use your space-age clog-busting powers on the stubborn drain and take some time off for yourself. Bye, friends. Have a nice dinner. I just call a plumber. Oh, Lord, I see thou art working through thy imperfect vessel, Marge, where thou art good wife. Those people pray silently. Archie, way the hell up there. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, th I think... Uh, I think Homer's on or the Simpsons are on to some pretty interesting things. There's a lot of confusion, I think, about, about prayer. And uh, people have a lot of problems and a lot, a lot of misconceptions. My plan today is not actually to solve all of those or even to solve very many of them, but to address a few of those issues to do with prayer. Whenever you bring up the concept of prayer in a church, though, uh, typically what happens in people in churches who are Christians, who have been Christians for a while, tend to feel pretty bad about it. 
Um, on one side of the fence, in a sense, you might have some people who aren't church people who don't follow Jesus. I think most people on the planet have prayed at some point in time. All right? Even if it is a prayer like, if you just get me out of this, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. All right? They've, they've been in a pressure point and they've been so despairing that they've gone for the prayer thing. For Christians, Christians have got this ongoing guilt, I guess, probably, about the fact that my prayer life's not where it needs to be. Does anyone here feel like that? Who here actually thinks, my prayer life is just right on? It's right where it needs to be. Okay, no one's put their hand up because then they know that they need to repent of pride at that point, probably. You know, and I could stand up here and I could say to you today, um, is your prayer life, you know, really well done? Is it well placed? Is it in a good place? Is there any improvement that you need to do to it? Um, but the correct answer often in Christendom is, is, I think I need to pray more. If someone came up and said, how's your prayer life? You go, well, it's okay, but I, I think I probably need to pray more. Um, and probably some of us, to be honest, have probably given up praying. Um, and there's some reasons for that, and I'm going to go through some of those reasons in a minute. Um, maybe you, your, your heart is, you just go, well, I asked for stuff, and uh, God didn't give it to me. Or uh, it's too hard to pray. I remember many, many years ago, this will be one of my statements, my infamous statements that I'll take to my grave, I'm sure. I remember talking to my boss, it must have been 15 years ago, and he suggested to me, he encouraged me, he said, look, you want to do these things in terms of leadership in the school, um, what about you just go and join up you know, and start doing some prayer stuff with the people who are praying? And this is what I said, all right? And you can quote me on this if you want. This is embarrassing, right? But this is what I said. I said, well, I'm not kind of the praying kind of guy. <laughs> That's right. And some people are going, so how did he get to be project leader? I don't know. But that's, that's kind of my infamous statement. Um, and I don't, to be honest, I've, I personally have struggled with the whole issue of prayer. Because I'm not the kind, you know, sometimes you've got those people they kind of sit, it's like they can sit down and they can pray for four hours straight. And like, I'm kind of not that guy. Now, I really appreciate people like that because I think every church needs to have people like that in the church, but I find that uh, pretty difficult to do. Um, so if you're someone here today and you, you're kind of the person in your head that's going, oh, yeah, or you say to people, yeah, I think I'm, my prayer life needs to improve, I'm probably a lot more like you than uh, what you would think. Don't think I'm this big kind of guru prayer. Having said that, this is a work that I think God's been doing in me recently. And uh, a lot of what you're going to hear today comes out of some of the resolutions for my own kind of struggle with, uh, with praying. So I wanted to start with this. Um, what is prayer? Well, if you look at it biblically, prayer is actually conversing with God. It's actually talking to God. It's, uh, it's actually the intermingling of your soul with God. Uh, not necessarily in contemplation or meditation, but in direct address to him. It can be uh, oral or mental, which basically means you can say it out loud or you can say it in your head. It can be occasional or constant, spontaneous or formal. And when you look at the scriptures, you actually find um, at least these six different ideas associated with prayer. It's, it's imploring the Lord. It's pouring out your soul before the Lord. It's praying and crying to heaven. It's seeking God and pleading with the Almighty for mercy. It's drawing near to God. It's bowing the knees. And what you actually find as you read the scriptures is that prayer is meant to be like broadband, not like dial-up internet. Does anyone here have dial-up internet anymore? 
you have that weird sound and then you're kind of on and no one can use the phone line while you're on and then you get off once you're done. Um, a lot of times through my life, I've thought of prayer as kind of dial-up internet. All right? It's not meant to be dial-up internet where you just dial in for an hour or something or 15 minutes or 10 minutes or five seconds. Um, it's something that's meant to be constantly connected and there's a constant interchange. If you go into my household and look at our broadband, mo- broadband modem, the lights are always flickering and the lights tell you that there's communication going on between devices and something outside of the home all the time. And in a sense, you don't have uh, LEDs across your forehead. That would be funny if you did. Uh, but you don't have them on there. But in, in a sense, prayer, you ought to be like a broadband modem that has the lights flickering all the time. And there's a sense in which you and God are communicating uh, very, very regularly. You can do prayer in a formal sense. And we do that um, at the church here. We have prayer times before church on Sunday morning. We pray formally in church. Uh, but you can also do it informally. It can be corporate. It can be a big group, but it can be individual as well. One thing we do know for sure, and we'll get to this later on in the message, is if it's not happening privately, then the stuff that's happening publicly doesn't really mean that much. Now, Jesus is very, very clear about that. And I would suggest to you today that if you're not privately praying, you've got a serious issue that you need to address if you're a Christian. That would be like being in a strange child or an estranged husband or wife who doesn't talk to the person they say they love. That's weird. Is everyone cool with that? So you need to talk because that's what a relationship is. There's this great um, quote in uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, um, and he asks this question via uh, another fellow that he quotes, what actually happens in your solitude? And his big idea here is that it's your solitude that says the most about you. So in the quietness, in the stillness, in your personal stillness, what actually is happening in your heart and what's happening in your head says volumes about where your position and where your heart is at. Here's uh, what he writes. There's a quote by Archbishop William Temple. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So just think about that. It's not what you do with your hands. It's not what you do with your time. It's not what you do with your money. It's not even what you do with your mouth. It's what your religion is what you do with your solitude. Listen to what Tim Keller writes about it. I had to think about that for three years before I figured it out. What does he mean? He says, when you don't have to think of anything, when you're not at work, when your mind isn't being taken to think by the environment, in other words, you're not at work, there's nothing that's taking hold of your mind, when you're standing on a street corner waiting for someone or you're in a place where you don't have anything to think about, where does your mind go? What does your mind habitually go to? What do you most like to think about? What do you most enjoy daydreaming about? What gives you the most comfort to fantasise about? And then he says, that's your God. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. It's a profound statement. So I would ask you, where does your mind naturally go when it's not being driven by something? Is it to adoration of God? Is it to prayer? Do you sit there and do you think about God? You see, Keller's really saying your real God is the one that you most effortlessly think about. And your private prayer is an index of what you think of God, whether you love God for who he is in himself or whether you're basically using him. It's really interesting. That's quite a confronting thought. A lot of prayer, I think, a lot of prayer, and a lot of the prayer that I've prayed is probably could fit into the category of using God. I just want him to do something for me. I'm not interested in him. 
I'm not interested in being in relationship with him. I just want him to do some stuff. Now, God does call us to go and ask him for help. God calls us to go and petition him for things. But not just for stuff. God wants us. And I wonder, at this point in time, what could you assume about your attitude to God based on your prayer life? Now, you can think of these wonderful theological thoughts about what you say is true about God, but probably at some level your prayer life reveals who you think God is, who you think you are, and what the two of you have to do with each other. Now, some of you at this point might be going, oh, this is a bit heavy. I thought he said he wasn't going to make us feel guilty. But I thought it was worth just touching on that at this point in time. I mean, wouldn't it be a great thought to think that you could sit and you could have nothing to do and your grandest thought would be thoughts of God? Because you know what? It will one day. That's how it's going to be one day. Because, you know, he is the most grandest thought that you could actually ever have. So if you're sitting there and you're you're saying, well, what's Peter doing? Is he he really making us feel guilty and making us have to discipline ourselves to think about something that we're supposed to... No, he's not. All Peter wants you to do is to meditate and to think and to converse with the one who is the most valuable, most treasure-filled, most amazing person in the universe. And part of our problem with prayer is we don't actually believe that. If we say that we believe it theologically, but in a functional sense, we probably don't really believe it as often. Okay, that's the end of the guilt trip. Well, it's not meant to be a guilt trip, it's meant to be an invitation, but you know what I mean. So the rest of the message, I want to look at five prayer problems. First one's this, I think I can do it. Second one, I didn't get the result I wanted. Third one, I prayed once and it didn't work. Fourth one, he doesn't listen to my prayers. And fifth one, he doesn't answer. Let's go to the first one, I think I can do it. Prayer is the practical expression of invisible humility. James chapter 4, without actually referring directly to prayer, says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and try to make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. One thing that is big time going to kill your prayer life is if you think you can just look after everything. I reckon a lot of times prayer is a bit like, God, I've got this one, I'll let you know if I've got a problem. (laughs) And I want to say to you today, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you don't have anything. The scriptures are very, very clear. In uh, John 15 verse 5, Jesus says, "Um, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You can't even sit where you're sitting and breathe without God. You are completely dependent upon him. The fact that you've been able to go for so long without realising or recognising your dependence. I mean, just even think about how many years you went before you actually gave your life to Christ. Now, he's been incredibly gracious. If you're someone here today and you're not a Christian, he is gracious to you to give you breath, to let you sit there without calamity coming upon you. If you're a Christian, think about all the years that you had before you were a Christian where he graciously supported you and helped you and he showed mercy toward you so many times and you didn't even see it. If you're a Christian now in the last week, I wonder how many times in the last week you thought, I've got this one. I'm okay. I'll be okay. I can work this out. I'll let you know if I get into trouble. He would say to you, you can't do anything without me. 
So depend upon me. See, if you actually believe that you can't do anything without him, you'll pray. And you're not going to pray because Peter stood up and made you feel guilty about it. You'll pray because you need him. You see, this is one of the things. When um, tragic things happen to people, what does it do? It kind of rips gashes in their self-sufficiency so that they realise that they desperately need God. And that's why people pray when they get into lots and lots of trouble for whatever reason because they have no other hope. Every other hope, every other crutch that they've been leaning on doesn't work anymore. And they know the only one that's going to be good enough is God. You see, our tragedies, our troubles expose our neediness and our dependence, the reality about our dependence. You don't have a second of any day where you're not completely dependent upon God. You can't drive home after this on your own without him. You can't breathe without him. And he would want you to depend heavily upon him. And the way that you're going to do that is have lots of conversation with him. I can't preach without him. I can't raise my children without him. I can't go to work without him. I can't even stand up here without him. If he decided in a, in a second's time, everything that I say could just turn to rubbish. Irrational stupidity. Some of you go, well, that's what it is now. So, You see, it's his wisdom, it's his strength, it's who he is that provides coherence and rationality. Everything in this world, the scriptures say that everything in this world holds together by him and by his word. If he takes that word away, it becomes irrational and it implodes upon itself. If you want to kill prayer, a good way to do it is to think that you can do it. Number two, I didn't get the result I wanted. Motive in prayer is critical. And we can see that in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is talking about how to pray. Verse 5 to 6, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites. So a hypocrite is someone who stands up and prays in public, clearly according to Jesus, and doesn't have a genuine heart there and probably doesn't pray in private. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't pray corporately? What do you think? No, he's not. He's saying that when you pray corporately, you better make sure that your heart's right. You better make sure that your motivation is right. Now, the really interesting thing about houses, uh, in this scripture here, it says to go into, um, into your room and shut the door. might be interested to know, back in the day, in the uh, first century, there was a room in the middle of the house that didn't have any external walls on it and it didn't have any windows. And it looks like this is what Jesus is saying. Go into that room. It's kind of like going to your pantry, all right? Shut the door so no one can see you and let me reward you. He's saying don't go after something that you shouldn't be going after in prayer. And sometimes I think prayer gets killed and we stop praying because we go, I prayed and I didn't get the result I wanted. And my question to you would be, were you asking for something good? It could be that your motivation was wrong 
in your praying. You see, the sign that you have an intimate growing relationship with God is that you want to pray, that you do pray, that you regularly pray. Do you pray when you have when you don't have something else to do? Do you pray naturally? And Jesus is saying, go into the room, close the door. And I would ask you this morning, how much time do you spend in prayer all by yourself? When no one's cracking the whip over you to pray. And we could easily have a prayer time here and maybe in response to this message there might be a bunch of you that would pray. What about all of those times that no one's ever going to see? That your husband's not going to see? That your wife's not going to see? That your boyfriend or your girlfriend's not going to see? Or your mum and dad's not going to see? What about all those times? What about all the times when no one knows anything about it? You see, for the Pharisees here, their motivation was glory from others. And what about at this point in time, what about asking God for something that God knows will be damaging for us? Is he not allowed to just say, no, I'm not going to give you that because that's going to hurt you? What about sometimes, I mean, this is an interesting thing. The more I look back on my life, the more I realise that a lot of prayers come out of me wanting my idols, the things that I really value, the things that I really treasure that aren't God. It's like I'm going to God and I'm saying, please give me what I want. And Jesus kind of becomes a bit of a servant to give me what I want instead of Jesus being the thing I really wanted. But then you've got a whole raft of things. Like what about people who have prayed, there's been a genuine request for something good? What about that? What about healing? What about release from suffering? His intervention in things. It can be difficult when God doesn't do what we want him to do. We need to remember that prayer is much more than just petition. Prayer is relational. It's fundamentally relational. And we need to come back to the reality, folks, that God's our Father and we are his children and by definition we can't always know what's best. Children don't always... Who who here's got kids? Cool. You guys know what I'm talking about? Do they know what's best all the time? No. So when you make a call... As a parent, to your kids and say, we're not going to do that, and then you explain why, do kids always understand why you've made the decision that you made? No, they don't. All right? By definition, father knows what's best, mother knows what's best. Ideally, the kids aren't always going to understand that. Certainly in a spiritual context, God would say, I always know what's best. I'm the father. I've got more information than you. At some level, we're going to have to just cave into that Tim Keller or submit to that Tim Keller makes this really I think this is such a useful statement listen to this he says God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he does isn't that good God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he does you see God loves you he doesn't expect that you're going to know everything Now, you'd be a really harsh parent if you said to your kids, if you said, listen, you've got finite knowledge, you don't know everything, just quit asking me stuff, will you? Would that be a loving parent? No, it's not a loving parent. So you know what God says? He says, come and pray, come and ask me. Now, is he always going to do everything that you want him to do? No, he's not, because he's a good dad. But he wants you to come to him, because he loves you. And he wants you to pray your heart out and pray your head off. Go for it. And then trust him with what he's going to bring about. 
Point number three, I prayed once and it didn't work. I'm going to show you a quick clip here from uh, the movie. I'm, I've been struggling to separate these two movies, but this is a much different movie to The Castle. I keep thinking this is The Castle, but this is The Island. So if you've seen the movie The Island, um, The Island is really about a uh, facility, a futuristic facility where they've worked out how to clone human beings and they've cloned human beings and put them in this facility with the express purpose of being able to harvest their organs uh, and that kind of stuff. So there's someone outside the facility um, that has created or been part of creating their own clone and the people in the facility, facility are the clones. They're not allowed out and they think that the facility they're in pretty much is the only one that's, that's going around. So they're living a, a delusional life. Uh, the, uh, one of the main guys, um, I think his name is Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Six Echo, apparently. And uh, he's actually got a connection with a repairman and he kind of gets out from the, the main facility in kind of behind the scenes where this repairman is fixing some stuff up in the facility. And this is the conversation that ensues. Hey, I've been something really bad and you close your eyes and wish for it, God's the guy that ignores you. Well, you know what the scriptures say? Well, firstly, he doesn't ignore you. Secondly, he says, don't just pray once. Um, at, at some level, the way that we pray reflects who we think God is. The frequency that we pray reflects who we think God is. And the way that we pray reflects how we think God should act. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a great English preacher, um, wrote this. Bombard God. Bombard heaven until the answers come. We have the authority of our Lord for this, have we not? In Genesis 32, we read that Jacob did something like that. I will not let thee go, he said. The men wrestled with him and said, it is the dawn, it is the breaking of day, let me go. But I'll not let thee go, said Jacob. I'm not letting go until you give me my request. Wrestling Jacob. And our Lord has taught us to pray like this. It is one of the most glorious and wonderful statements ever he, even he ever made about God and God's relationship with us. He said, you know, you must not just pray fitfully. You must become importunate. Now, the word importunate basically means to be persistent to the point of offence. All right? 
You must be like that man who suddenly is visited by a friend late at night. This is a story Jesus tells in the Gospels. He has no food to give him, so he says, oh, my friend up the street will have some loaves, so he goes and hammers at the door. But the friend shouts, he says, I cannot come down, I'm in bed and my children are with me. No, says the man, you must give me something. I know you've got bread and I've got a stranger here, I can't let him go without a meal. He goes on hammering. I can't, says the man, I'm in bed. But the suppliant goes on and on until at last the man gets up and gives him the bread. The man in the bed in our Lord's illustration is none other than God himself. Because of his neighbour's... Oh, jeez. Sam, can you say? Importunity, thank you. He arose... (laughs) That's right. She's my linguistic help. And, And gave him the bread. And if we who are earthly, sinful, evil fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall our Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He will not mock us. Listen to this. But... Like a father, he seems to keep us waiting. He seems to say no at first, that we may go on asking and we must become importunate. That's, I think that's pretty true. I mean, what parent always says, gives an immediate answer all the time? I mean, there's some things that kids ask for. You just go, well, we're just going to wait a little bit and we're just going to see if this person's really after this, if this is really important to them. And there's a sense in which uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is kind of saying that, that God kind of does that, so don't just ask once. Some of you might go, how many times do you ask? And I'd say to you, how long's a piece of string? So keep asking. I mean, there's a sense almost there, isn't there, that in that story that Jesus is saying, you've got to irritate God until he does something. But it's not the irritation of someone who's getting on his case. It's one of his children who desperately wanting to act in a particular situation. So don't give up. Who knows whether God might actually come through on the 35th prayer or the 350th prayer or far be it the 3,000th prayer. Prayer is a rebellion against the status quo and we should go to God. We should go to God and we should petition him often, not just individually, and this has been something that's troubled me. I've, I've often thought, why do we get lots and lots of people to pray? See, I'm kind of, my default setting is kind of realist, right? So it's like, I'll pray it once, he heard me, I don't need to say it again, <laughs> all right? And I don't need to get 45 people praying with me. And to be honest, I've always struggled with the idea that we should send out prayer requests and get 50 or 60 people praying. It's just going, well, that sounds really self-centered and it was all kind of a bit of an issue for me and I, I was struggling to see... Uh, how, how it all fit in. And then I read this section uh, some time ago from Second uh, Corinthians 1. Let's read it. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, if... This is Paul writing, right? If he was an Australian Christian, he wouldn't write that because we don't tend to tell people about our needs too much. All right? Because it's, uh, it's an admirable thing to be resourceful. It's an admirable thing to be independent. He probably would write something like, yeah, it was hell, but if you found out, good on you. It's nice that someone found out about it. And Paul doesn't say that, right? He's going, we don't want you to be unaware of what was going on, right? What he's actually doing is he's, is he's saying, yeah, we appreciated you guys knowing. Um, and, and they actually played some kind of proactive role in making sure that they did know. 
Now, the interesting thing when you talk about this, and we've talked about some stuff like this in our community group, is usually people go, yeah, that's really good. We think it's good to pray for people. And so I, I think what we tend to find is people are, find it easier to pray for someone else than they do to say they need prayer for someone, for, from other people. It's a bit like that with uh, ministries of mercy or, or ministries of helps in churches. Um, somehow we don't want to be a charity case. So we don't want to be the needy one. And Paul here is kind of going in the opposite direction. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of how needy we actually were and how much we needed you to help us. And I actually think um, the hardest thing that I've noticed from talking with people in the project is not that people aren't willing to help, but people aren't willing to say that they need help. And I'll just encourage you, if you're in that category, say that you need help. And if you know someone who needs help, Kind of do Mark chapter 2, you know. The four men took the paralytic to meet Jesus. He couldn't get there. And sometimes people's own sense of, well, it might be self-centered or it might be pride or I don't want to be the focus of everything. Maybe what needs to happen is if you know someone who's in a, in a dire need that you, you gather some people around to help. Now, ideally, it'd be nice if people were a little bit more open, probably. And I'm sure it's probably happening in community groups a bit, but a bit more open about what they share in terms of their needs. But I understand if you're not, which is why it's good to be in relationship because it's good to have someone else go, hey, this person's got a real need. Can we gather some people around to help them out? Maybe they need prayer. Maybe they need some money. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Basically, they thought they were going to die. And they were serious about their thought that they were going to die. That's how intense it was. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, note the very next section in 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So ask the question, why should you get lots of people praying? Because lots of people give thanks when God does stuff. True? And God's in the centre. He's like the most important central being in the whole universe and he's the one to whom all the glory should go. And we want him to get more glory, which means you should tell more people about your needs so when he does stuff, more people give thanks to him. Amen? That's kind of what happened with Diff talking about uh, Wynn here before. That's great. I hope that a whole bunch of you who have prayed for Wynn will go home and just give glory and honour to God. Because that's how it's meant to work. And there's a sense in which when we tell people about what our needs are, it creates more opportunity for people to ask God for help and then more people to give thanks and glory to God when he comes through. So I would encourage you, tell lots of people how needy you are. <laughs> All right? And that fits in pretty well because Paul talked about, I'd rather boast in my weaknesses, didn't he? Like we would be a really strong church if people boasted in their weakness and everyone in the church kept praying for each other and asking God to intervene on the behalf of someone else. True? Four, he doesn't listen to my prayers. Let me give some other varieties of this. My prayers bounce off the ceiling. He doesn't care about them. He's too busy. He's more important things to do. 
Now, we know these things theologically aren't right if you've been in the church longer than a couple of years. But you can still functionally live this stuff. It's like this, it just bounces off the ceiling. It doesn't go anywhere. He's not paying that much attention. He's got a Malaysian air jet that's just been shot down over the Ukraine. He's got bigger fish to fry at the moment. He's got the whole Gaza kind of Middle East kind of thing going on. And then just general conflict and abuse and trouble across the whole world. Why would he have time to listen to me? And they can be functional beliefs. And what can actually happen is doubts can actually slip in sometimes. There's a sense in which when you look at um, the scriptures, you actually see, especially in the Psalms, you actually see the psalmist getting blinded by the trouble that he's in. Psalm 22, verse 1 to 5, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But do you see there, in that actual passage of Scripture, he starts off and he goes, God's not listening to me. And there's a sense in which you can actually get in the midst of some trouble that's so intense that you can't hear God. And it's not just trouble that, in a sense, happens to you as a victim, but when you actually blow it and you get things really badly wrong, it's just like, I can't see God right now, and he's not listening to me. And the Scriptures would say to you, and God would say to you today, he would say, I'm always listening to you. If you're my beloved child, if you're my son and my daughter, I'm always listening to you. I'm always connected to you. I never stop listening to you. Your prayers never bounce off the ceiling. You're never forsaken. There's this beautiful scripture in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. It says this, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, that's weird. If you read Revelation, you actually realise that Revelation is a story, basically, it's it's apocalyptic language. So it's actually giving you um, some kind of insight in what's going to happen in the end times. I'm not going to go into whether I'm pre-millennial, post-millennial, a-millennial, pan-millennial, or whatever millennial you are, all right? We're not doing that here today. But the interesting thing is, when you read Revelation, you get a sense the place is probably pretty noisy. Now, this is the only time in the book of Revelation where it talks about a period of time in a definitive sense. For half an hour, there was silence. Now, if you came to the Sondergeld household, if you're new here today, I've got four sons. The oldest is ten, the youngest is five. If you came to my house and there was silence in the Sondergeld house for half an hour... Yeah, it's, people are shaking their heads, right? You're just going, that's not good. That either means someone's unconscious, <laughs> all right, or they're up to no good. They're not going to be asleep, all right? That's pro- it's only at night time where there's silence. It's like weird. And it's exactly the same thing when you get to Revelation. When you get to a time where it's really silent for half an hour, there's something unique that's actually happening there. Let's read the rest of it. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with what? The prayers of the saints. Isn't this beautiful? 
with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Don't you get a sense here? It's like God's just telling people, just shut up everyone for a sec, can you? Because the prayers are coming. He doesn't want some kind of noisy show, some kind of fair that's going on while the prayers get offered. It's not like Queen's Park when the Carnival of Flowers are on, you know, and you walk around there and it's just noisy and there's Ferris wheels and there's rides, there's people doing stuff. He doesn't want that. He wants it quiet. And I think he wants it quiet because he wants to hear all of it. And they're special and they're precious to him. God always hears your prayers. He always hears your prayers. And one of the things I just want to encourage you to do today is to do your darndest to give words to your groaning and to your sighs because he hears them. We see in Psalm 5 verse 1 to 3, it says this, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. You see, prayer needs to be about the deepest things in your heart. And sometimes you're going to need to stop long enough to actually reach down into the deep things of your heart and speak those things out to God. And somehow in prayer, I know that it says in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. But you want to do the best that you can to put your groans and your sighs into words and to pray them to God. And there's probably a sense in which if you can't, if you go around and you sigh and you groan about all the stuff and you're not wanting to bring it to God, you probably just need to stop groaning and sighing. Because we can do that sometimes too, right? You kind of get that pity party happening and we're just going, and you can have this whole raft of stuff that you're not bringing to God because you don't really want to, because you know that it's going to mean something that you're going to have to do as well. All right? You don't bring it to him. You go around, you groan and sigh about it, and people hear you. You know, if you're someone who's a bit audible about this, they'll know that you're groaning and sighing. And if we're good Christian brothers and sisters, what would we say? We'd say, brother or sister, you need to take that to God. I'm here to help carry your burdens, and I want to listen to you, but it's not right that you just go and groan and sigh about that without taking it to God. I'm not saying that you've got to shut up and you've got to be stoic. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you do need to put it into words, and you need to address it to God directly. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And what? Now, why would you watch? Yeah, you're waiting for something to happen. True? It's like if you got up in the morning and it's like nothing was going to happen today, you go, well, I'm not going to sit around here waiting for something to happen because nothing's happening. But the psalmist is saying, so you pour out your your sighs and your groanings to God and then you get up in the morning and what do you do? You watch to see what's going to happen because something's going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to be what you want to happen, but something's going to happen because he's your dad and he loves you. And so there's a sense in which there needs to be the discipline of prayer, but also the spontaneity of prayer, the responding to your deepest yearnings, the things that you mourn after. Turn it into prayer and talk to God about it. I want to show you a quick clip from uh, Shadowlands, which is about the life of C.S. Lewis. And this is a section 
in the middle where his wife's been diagnosed with cancer. Jack, what news? Uh, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. I'm very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Huh? And now God is answering your prayer. Well, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm not... The last phrase there probably gets a bit problematic biblically because I think there's times where... Well, God's clear about the fact that he responds to prayer. But I love what he's, what he's saying there about how he can't help it because the need flows out of him all of the time. Number five, he doesn't answer. This is a real problem. And I want to suggest to you this morning, and I want, to, I want to communicate to you this morning that God always answers. And the reason why God always answers is because there was one person um, who didn't get an answer. Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and, his two, and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So this is just before Jesus goes and is crucified on the cross. And do you know what God answers? He doesn't. And you can go through the other Gospels. He actually doesn't answer. The really interesting thing about this, if you go back to uh, Psalm 66, verse 18 to 19, it says this. It says, if I had cherished iniquity or sin or evil in my heart, God would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Jesus was the only one that didn't cherish evil and sin in his heart. You see this? He was the one, he's probably the only one who ever deserved an answer. But he was the one who didn't get one. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason why he didn't get an answer is the reason why you are guaranteed an answer. The one that deserved the answer didn't get one so that you are guaranteed an answer to every prayer that you pray. And part of our problem, I think, is that we don't have enough certainty internally that God's actually going to answer our prayer. You see, the reason why we know that God will answer our prayer in a way we like it or a way we don't like it is because of the great unanswered prayer. Let this cup pass from me. You see, Jesus was called out, but he was forsaken. Sorry, Jesus called out, but he was forsaken. You see, we deserve to have our prayers rejected. And in a sense, he had his prayer rejected. He was the one that didn't cherish iniquity in his heart. See, Jesus was given the prayer rejection we deserve so we could have the prayer acceptance he deserved. See, God is going to answer your prayer. There might be tough times, but in the long run, he'll give you what you ask because Jesus was rejected. He'll answer you. 
You see, it might be that you need to repent of idols. And maybe you're frustrated that God's not answering you in a way that you want. And it has more to do with what your heart values than anything else. But God will answer you. He'll, he will come to you and he'll, he'll give you an answer to your prayers. I want to finish on a really practical note for the last couple of minutes. I want to give you a really practical way of reading the Bible and praying. Now, you can get this. I'll put this document on. If you go to the church's website, the project's website, and you pull down uh, the What's On, you, you pull down Connect and you go to the What's On tab, this will be the top thing at the moment um, there, which is this uh, little model for um, Bible reading and prayer. So here, here it is. I'm going to rip through it in about two minutes. All right? It's, it's reasonably simple. Here's the first, first thing that I reckon you need to do, and I would encourage everyone to do this this week, maybe every day. Okay? Here's what I reckon you should do. Take a Bible passage and read it through three or four times. And then what you want to do is you want to make a list of everything that the passage tells you about God or Jesus or Christ. Second thing is list everything it tells you about yourself. And the third thing is look for examples to follow or to avoid commands to obey, do, or promises that you need to claim out of that particular passage. All right? You'll get this off our website. Then... um, what I would encourage you to do is to move from reading the Bible to meditation, all right? And you don't have to cross your legs and hold your fingers out there like that because it's not that kind of meditation. See, biblical meditation is never a vacant head. Biblical meditation is a very full head, and this is what I'm going to suggest that you, uh, that, you, uh, that you do. So what I'm suggesting you to do is uh, choose one or two things to meditate on. It's really interesting. Uh, Meditation is not actually praying. If you go to um, um, Psalm 103, some of you would know the scripture says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He does this and that and the other thing, and he goes all the way down. Now, the really interesting thing about that psalm is that the psalmist is not speaking to God. The psalmist is speaking to his own soul about God. All right? So he's saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So what's actually happening in Psalm 103 is some biblical meditation, I believe. David's not speaking to God, but he's speaking to his own soul. So here's what you do when you switch into meditation mode. All right? First thing you do is you ask, how would I be different if this truth was explosively alive in my innermost being? So you pick one or two truths that you've just identified um, through reading the, the Bible passage. The next thing I suggest that you do is to look at what you've written down and ask, if I really, really believed it in the bottom of my heart, how would I be different? And the fourth one there, ask yourself how or why God is showing me this today. Is everyone with me so far? This is pretty, I think it should be reasonably straightforward. The next one is prayer. My uh, parents taught me to pray through Acts the acts of prayer, all right, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. Supplication is asking God for stuff. So what I'd encourage you to do then is take the acts framework and apply that to the particular passage and the stuff that you've just been reading and meditating on. So your first thing is you're going to say, adoration, what can I actually praise God for out of what I've just learned in this particular passage? Second thing is confession. What's happened in my life when I've forgotten what I've noticed here? How do I react and act? What do I need to confess to God and ask his forgiveness for? Number three is thanksgiving. How is Jesus the key to overcoming the sin that I just confessed? 
And number four is supplication. What do I need to do or become in the light of this? What help do I, do, do I need to ask God for? So you ask God for help on that particular issue. Is this, everyone still with me? It's pretty straightforward. I reckon if you did this every day for the rest of your life, nah, you can just, well, you, it'd be really helpful to you. But I reckon you should have a crack at doing it every day for the rest, maybe for the rest of this week. Get it off the website. There's a PDF there. There's a Word document. It's got all this in there. And I've even put, at no extra charge, some lines in there. So the, all you've got to do is print it out, pick your passage, and go through and work through it. Now, what's going to happen, probably less than half the time, but what's going to happen after that sometimes is that you're going to get to this point of contemplation. All right? Now, let me read a section by Martin Luther uh, from his... Uh, paper a simple way to pray listen to this if in the midst of such thoughts the holy spirit begins to preach in your heart with rich enlightening thoughts honor him by letting go of this written scheme be still and listen to him who can do better than you can now he's not talking about this pattern he's talking about his own pattern that he's laid out in his article right but it's i think it's very very profound what he's talking about and i think anyone who's been a Christian and who's spent time with God, praying with God, knows that you get to times of contemplation sometimes where you've gone beyond just reading what's in the Bible, you've gone beyond meditating on what's in the Bible, you've gone even beyond praying and there becomes this really sweet interchange that goes on between you and God over the stuff that you've just been meditating and praying and reading. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what Luther's talking about with the contemplation. And I would encourage you that those times are great, great times. And you can... While away the time without even notice it going, going past. And that's what I would say to you. Am I the kind of guy that can sit down and pray for six hours in a row? Probably not. Am I the kind of guy that loves to just sit and I love those times of contemplation with God? Absolutely. I just do. I just love it. And uh, what I really appreciated when I uh, heard this stuff about this particular framework uh, from a pastor is I just thought that's kind of a little bit I'm a little bit looser than that, but that's kind of what I've been doing and that's kind of what I love to do. And I love to sit and just meditate and think about things and what it means for me. So it really crystallised a whole bunch of stuff and I really encourage you to, um, to have a look at that, go to the website, get the document off there and just utilise it. And I think it'd be really helpful for you. I'm going to pray and um, I'd love it if you'd be happy to stand with me and I'll just pray for you. Let's pray. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and forever and ever. Amen.